From KQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. Hi, my name is Jack Pendarvis. I've recently finished a stint as a visiting writer-in-residence at the University of Mississippi. I've written two books of short stories, and today I'll be reading from my first novel, which has just come out. It's called Awesome. The narrator is a 30-foot-tall giant. As I'll be reading from the beginning, very little setup is needed, except to say that I have expurgated some of the saucier language and imagery for the sake of broadcast propriety. And with that, I'll begin. Man, I look fantastic in this derby. Everybody's saying, who's the dude in the derby? It's so natural to me, I don't even realize I have it on. I'm just walking around. If people can't handle my derby, that's their problem. Hey, we live in modern times these days. That derby doesn't fit into my view of the world, they silently complain, to which I reply, exactly. I am a hale man with beautiful teeth. My doctor always remarks upon my superb physiognomy. I am strong and clean. This morning I put on a nice yellow shirt and some brown slacks, pleasant to the touch. I capped myself off with my lustrous derby. Finder of lost kittens, fixer of potholes, I stride the sidewalks. I am a white American male of Scandinavian descent. I try to be a good citizen. I have all the money I will ever need. I go around seeing what I can do to help. I can lift an automobile if I have to. I can run fast. I am at ease with the lingo of the common folk, explaining complex truths in a down-to-earth slang accessible to all. I can leap 100 yards from a standstill if necessary. I have the skills to build a robot. Deep down, I am just a regular guy. I am a giant. My name is Awesome. Here is a normal day for me. Wake up. Look at my handsome nakedness in my big mirror. My robot ward, Jimmy, is already up and making coffee. I could turn Jimmy into a wife robot if I wanted to. I could stretch him out to giant size and add some female-looking parts. I could give him a different voice and name and put some eyelashes on him, but it wouldn't seem right. Aside from dining, sleeping, and a few other biological necessities, I strive to divide each day of my life into four exactly equal parts, comprised of, respectively, meditation, recreation, industry, and avocation. Meditation takes many forms. It begins when I catch the morning bus with the regular people. Technically, I pick up the bus and carry it downtown. Everyone seems to enjoy the change of pace. When I have arrived, I generally stare at the fountain. I might invent a religion or make mental notations for my dream journal. These may be records of dreams I have had or speculations upon dreams I expect to have in the future. Examples. Dream of a series of mustaches. Dream of a father-in-law with a thin, forked, sexual member listless on his chin. Dream of magma. Dream of a glass bubble half-filled with explosive powder. The aquarium is nearby. Its high ceilings I find appealing. I can crawl through the wide front doors and move about in a comfortable crouch. Meditation may involve contemplating the beluga whale. He radiates in a key sympathetic to my own. Everybody's saying, check out that dude looking at the whale. Do they have some kind of freaky mind meld going on or what? In their own way, my admirers are on to something. There is a large viewing area like a dance floor. When I sit there, there is not much room left over. 
the others don't mind. They crowd around as best they can, enjoying my connection with the beluga whale. The beluga whale twirls in the water. The beluga whale is patched with rough disease. He has a scar indicating emasculation. Overall, however, his skin could be made into a nice suitcase, possibly the nicest suitcase ever manufactured. His eye is intelligent and probing. When he rubs against the glass, his skin becomes smooth and flat like rubber, plastic, or ice cream. He possesses gorgeous, supple, leg-like muscles where his legs would be, were he to have legs. His leg muscles seem to validate the theory of evolution in a wholesome way. He is playful. He blows a kind of spit bubble, a water ring, which floats in front of his face for a moment before he swallows it. A recreational game. The varieties of twirling, swimming, floating, spinning, and whirling he demonstrates are slow and limitless. His value as an object of meditation is likewise slow and limitless. The beluga whale, says the guide, was rescued from somewhere. He enjoys people as much as people enjoy him. He has a life expectancy of 50. His skin disease is in the process of healing. Where he was rescued, the water was too warm. He prefers the icy Arctic climes. Any questions? I raise my hand and ask the guide his name. Stephen, I had a cousin named Stephen. He was killed in basic training. You're so lucky, Stephen. You have a wonderful head of hair. Is it naturally curly? People seem soothed by you. How about it, everybody? Don't you find Stephen soothing? You're on top of your whale information. I have complete trust that I could ask you anything about a whale and you would know the answer. That's a rare gift. I hope you don't ever forget it. I know you won't. You're a special person, Stephen. In a way, Stephen, yes, that is a question about the whale. Recreation is subdivided into three-fourths aiding and one-fourth joshing. Aiding is reserved for strangers in need. Aiding is further subdivided into three-fifths active and two-fifths passive. Active aiding is sub-sub-subdivided into one-half physical aid, one-half mental spiritual aid. As an example of mental spiritual aid, consider my conversation with Stephen, the aquarium guide who had hairs growing on his nose, not just in it. I imagine that he had, on more than one occasion, applied a safety razor to those unusual surface hairs, and that as a result they had grown back thicker each time, getting him down in the dumps. Example of passive aid, my derby. When people see me wearing my derby, they are filled with feelings they can't explain. Perhaps not all of these feelings are positive at first blush. Jealousy and confusion, for example. Inability to accept things that are different. Worries about money. Will they ever have enough money to buy a derby like mine? Issues of self-esteem. I could never pull off a derby like that, is a sample thought. I don't have the face for it, the genes. Later, they go home and think about their feelings. At this point, negativity is turned into learning and growing. As an example of my industry, I may cite the time a university asked me to construct two robots for use in a robot debate. The project was a joint venture of the science and philosophy departments and the divinity school. I programmed one robot's brain with the works of David Hume. His friend I programmed with the works of Emanuel Swedenborg. The first robot, set to shuffle mode, 
opened the debate with a reference to the second book of Hume's A Treatise of Human Nature, entitled Of the Passions, drawing on section 12 of The Pride and Humility of Animals, subsection 4, he proved through a system of rationality that turkeys are haughty and snobbish, while nightingales are proud of their singing abilities. My second robot retorted, making use of part 108 of Swedenborg's De Colo et Ejus Mirabilibus et De Inferno Ex Auditus et Vices, that bees, caterpillars, and birds, lacking rationality, are closer to the divine path than man. Having served their purpose, the robots were dismantled, a process to which each submitted peaceably. Avocation, Alpine Bells After all the good I try to do, it seems a small thing to ask that I be given the liberty to spend a fourth of every day, minus sleep, etc., playing songs on my Alpine Bells. My downstairs neighbor, Glorious Jones, has had a problem with it in the past, I've received several notes of complaint, and once she called the police. The police officers were hearty men of good cheer. We had hot chocolate. Before the evening was done, I had taught them to play a few simple tunes with my alpine bells. They stomped on the floor as they danced and played. My downstairs neighbor came up to see what all the commotion was about. I explained how the alpine bells clear the system of all its woes. I suggested that with her large, wet eyes, tattered shift, and unkempt blue-black hair, she resembled a delightful urchin. I hinted that if the police officers could make the best of the alpine bells, so could anyone. I invited her to join in. I shook the bell on my left hand. I shook the bell on my left leg. I shook the bell on another appendage. My downstairs neighbor was filled with wonder. Is that what I think it is? Yes, it is an alpine bell. It's inhumanly large. You're welcome to give it a tinkle. My downstairs neighbor and the two policemen went to work on my alpine bell. My capacity for love is unbounded. My exuberance requires placation twelve times every day. Like sleeping and dining, it falls under the rubric of necessity and subtracts significantly from the total hours I am able to devote to the four key areas of my daily routine. My schedule, as you can see, is a taxing one. The concentration involved would cause an ordinary person's brain to crumble into bits, like a Renaissance fresco or a muffin. As a precaution, I treat myself to an annual vacation lasting ten months. Here is the usual way in which my vacation commences. I post flyers in the quads near the humanities departments of regional universities, seeking young men and women for special companionship. We load into the car, myself, my robot ward, Jimmy, and the six females and two males I have chosen based on their written applications and an intensive series of interviews and psychological profiling. The car is built to hover or float over the other traffic. It would not be fair to take up the eight lanes of interstate my marvelous car would require. We stop only to buy homemade jellies from quaint roadside fruit stands or snap photos with our iPhones of billboards containing humorous grammatical errors and or unintentional double entendres, the latter of which I intend to self-publish in an eight-volume collector's edition with slipcase. That, as I said, is the usual way, but this year's vacation was to be a honeymoon. 
I had chose to marry my downstairs neighbor, Glorious Jones, in a ceremony of my own devising, based upon a religion I had invented one morning at the fountain. The ceremony began with the performance of an oratorio entitled The Doomed Waif, which I composed on the preceding afternoon. Representatives of a book company approached me on the morning of my wedding, hoping to include me in a record book for having attained the world's record for composing an oratorio in the quickest amount of time. I asked them not to sully my wedding day with commerce. When they insisted that I deserved an especial accolade for my work, I picked them up in my arms, there were five of them, and tossed them into the treetops where they could be heard protesting until the commencement of the overture, the beauty of which struck them dumb with pleasure. I believe they discovered that riches and awards are no match for art. Two of them later died of their injuries. A third expired from joy. I will skip over most of the details of the ceremony, which was esoteric, hermetic, and arcane to such a degree that even those who witnessed it were incapable of describing it afterward. For the inevitably curious, I can confirm that, yes, I did wear my derby. I could feel the eyes of the wedding guests on me, marveling. When the time came for me to acquiesce to the union, I revealed to the delight of all present that I had written my own vows. Glorious Jones, I recited, you're a truly gifted and accomplished person and a great beauty of your kind in your small, peculiar category. No one can take that away from you. It isn't your fault that your looks wither next to mine, wither into humiliating rot. Indeed, that only makes me love you more. For what is more important than achievement and beauty in this strange world? I will tell you, bravery. The first time I noticed your bravery was when you answered my ad in the newspaper and appeared to have no qualms about living below me on the first floor of the magnificent brownstone specially constructed so that a man of my particulars might live and work at ease. Perhaps it was the cheap rent that enticed you, or perhaps it was your bravery, because as the fine print in your lease pointed out, you daily faced the prospect of an unfortunate crushing or being deafened by my footsteps overhead like unto thunder, or suffering any number of long-term medical problems due to the radiation emanating from my robots. And many times you violated your rental agreement, such as the part about not cooking food with terrible-smelling spices, and I found it in my overflowing heart to forgive you. For you are what is called a normal woman, but by marrying me, Glorious Jones, you have shown yourself to be the bravest woman of all. And I suppose it could be proven that doing something like that is a kind of weird beauty, even if it doesn't count by most standards. A lot of the time, stuff that's not supposed to count ends up being important, and everybody's like, wow, I didn't see that coming. So congratulations. Congratulations upon your nuptial day. Even though everybody here is probably thinking that you're the lucky one because I'm a wildly attractive and powerful giant and everything, I invite them to come back in 60 years or so. I don't age much, so you'll most likely be mistaken for my great-grandmother or something, but your inner beauty by that time will be resplendent. And that's apparently what really counts, so good for you. You've already got a real head start, baby, no kidding. Isn't she a peach, folks? Now, without any further ado, let's get it on, Glorious Jones. That's right, start peeling. At this point, the camel came out. Hop on the camel I rented as a special surprise, 
do what comes naturally, while I watch from on high in the company of all our friends and your aged mother, who we are so pleased to have with us here today. I'm going to have to ask the bridesmaids and whomever else wants to chip in to help me out with my part of the consummation, for as you well know, it is not a job for one man. I know we have been discussing how we might do it together, just you and me, and I have been thinking of instating a contest on the Internet with a million-dollar prize for the scientist, philosopher, or gifted amateur who comes up with a solution prior to your inevitable decline. There was a small hush as many fainted from my eloquence and others from the prospect of being pressed into the holiest of conjugal services. But what about the vows I wrote, said Glorious Jones. That really wasn't part of the plan, sweetheart, I said. Not that I'm not completely delighted at the prospect, but it does throw a kink into the schedule, so maybe we should skip it. I'll make it quick, said Glorious Jones. She proceeded to defame me in the foulest language imaginable, concluding with a statement that she wouldn't marry me if I were the last person on the bleeping earth. Using a grappling hook that I had intended for the dramatic finale of the ceremony, she sprang to a nearby rooftop and made what I can only call her escape. Jimmy, my robot ward, conducted a quick chemical analysis of two tiny dots of moisture adorning the silken runner athwart which Glorious Jones had erstwhile stood. He found them to be composed of a saline compound not incompatible with the makeup of actual human tears. Yes, there was a 98.5% certainty that I had made Glorious Jones cry. I blamed my passion for complex prose. I struck the ground again and again with my mighty fists until a sinkhole was opened up, swallowing the wedding guests. I flooded the sinkhole with my copious tears, enabling most of those trapped therein to float to the surface and escape unharmed. As twilight approached, I found myself alone in the shambles I had made of the botanical gardens, the intended site of my connubial union. How many harmless trees had I uprooted, how many innocent flowers plucked asunder, how many Japanese bridges had I chewed into splinters, how many swans had I terrified, what had I done to the camel? I dawdled on the long walk back to my home, noticing the characteristics of birds and other classy things. I confess that as I walked, I allowed myself to think that Glorious Jones had cooled down as well and would be waiting to patch things up. But our home had been emptied of her things. It had been emptied of my things as well. All my important experiments and inventions had been wiped from the earth as if they had never existed. Jimmy, my robot ward, had arrived home just before me, or so he said. Where have you been, Jimmy? You're not programmed to go places and do things. Your homing device should have sent you here directly after the ceremony. Part of your job is being on the lookout for intruders and industrial competitors. I was at the mall, said Jimmy, my robot ward. I was trying to win you a pickup truck and a radio contest to make you feel better. That makes no sense for a number of reasons, Jimmy. You should get the police on her, said Jimmy, my robot ward, a sweeping motion of his robot arm indicating the emptiness all about us. He was speaking of Glorious Jones. I hardly think that's necessary. A wedding is the best day of a girl's life, and there's a lot of unfair pressure built up around it. 
It would be unusual not to get the jitters. That's no excuse to treat you like dirt, said Jimmy, my robot ward. If she comes slinking back, you should tell her to hit the bricks. There's one possible miscalculation that has been nagging at me, Jimmy. You specifically tabulated a 92% probability that Glorious Jones's most deeply held fantasy was that thing with the camel. Could you run a quick scan on that math for me? Let's go bowling first, said Jimmy, my robot ward. I have to stick around here, Jimmy. Glorious Jones might call. Put me on the phone. I'll tell her right where she can go. Someone knocked at the door. This might be her, I said, shoving Jimmy into the closet. My visitor introduced himself as Glorious Jones's attorney, Hap Martin. He was a skeletal young man, his almost fully receded hair of a paleness, described by Lord Byron in his famous poem about dudes kicking back in a dungeon. His mustache, however, was eloquent, of the pencil-thin variety and fussed over a great deal. His eyes were as dead as lost buttons, his teeth and ears on the pointy side. He wore a black cape lined with royal purple and used a walking stick topped with a silver wolf's head. I have papers, he said. My client has requested that you sign them in blood. On one condition, I must speak to her. I'm afraid that is impossible, said her attorney, Hap Martin. Well, then, just tell her there are no hard feelings about cleaning out the brownstone. It was totally within her rights. She knows that everything I have is hers. My client did not partake in any such unauthorized confiscation of your goods, sir. I can only assume that you have hidden your assets in anticipation of the inevitable court decision against you. I assure you that my robot ward, Jimmy, came home to find the living quarters in their present condition. His heat sensors detected an afterglow in the exact shape of Glorious Jones, or so he has informed me, and he is a reliable machine. May I remind the gentleman that Glorious Jones is no machine, but a refined and talented lady of real flesh and blood. While your description is undoubtedly accurate in a technical sense, I fail to see its bearing on our current conversation. Putting that aside, however, at least may I know, is there any chance that Glorious Jones will take me back? To my surprise, Attorney Hap Martin ripped his legal documents into quarters. With your voluntary posing of that question, sir, I have been authorized to give you this. He withdrew from his shirt pocket a packet of letters in lavender envelopes tied round about with a silver ribbon of shimmeringest gossamer. A faint waft of gardenia greeted me, the preferred scent of Glorious Jones. I reached for these blessed reminders, but with a lawyerly trick, Hap Martin snatched them away. Ah, 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 he said. You were to open one at a time, starting with the topmost of the packet. With each envelope you open, an object of your quest will be revealed to you. You are not to open another envelope before finding the present object. When you have opened the last envelope and found the final object, Miss Jones will consider that you have done your penance and proven your love. At that time you will be allowed to meet her face to face, state the reasons for your past behavior, beg for her forgiveness, and make a case for whatever future relationship with her that you deem probable at that juncture. So, if I succeed at a simple scavenger hunt, I win back the trust and love of Glorious Jones, I summarized. I am young, but precocious and experienced, said Hap Martin. In my many years at the bench, I have locked horns with perhaps a score of worthy foes. 
may I say that you have proven to be the most eloquent and insightful of them all. It has been a true pleasure to match wits with you, sir, and so I leave you with this bit of advice. Beware. Things are often more complicated than they seem. I have never found that to be the case, I said, but I thank you for your input. Hap Martin vanished in an erectation of malodorous brown smoke. Setting off on foot, alone, without my robot ward, Jimmy, without my special car or collegiate helpers, in the plain rough-hewn clothing of a common day laborer, and with nothing but my derby to remind me of the past, I knew somehow that this would be a vacation like no other. Who does he think he is with that terrific derby I interpreted as the feelings of my observers? A derby like that belongs in a titan, not this hulking vagrant with the grizzled beard and hollow downcast eyes. Yes, my derby had become my crown of thorns. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, please visit kqed.org slash writer's block. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.